Why don't we stand together in the public reading of God's word? I'm reading from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 through verse 26. We'll do the responsive reading. I'm reading from the NIV. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some are for common use. Those who, clean, uh, who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth, desires and pursue, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, faith, peace, love, and peace, love, those who call on the God of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone and able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And all together now? And that they, and may that will, they will come to their senses, senses and escape from the trap of the devil. Who has, who has taken them, them captive, captive to do, to do his, will. his will. This is the word of the Lord. Dear precious Father, we thank you so much for gathering us here um, as your people at NBC, the English-speaking congregation. Uh, we ask, Lord, that we will be able to hear a word that will be also insightful and encouraging so that we will be able to live out this week in a manner that is pleasing to you, in a manner that uh, is really fitting to your name. We ask that the preacher this uh, afternoon would speak with your clarity and your conviction and that each and every one of us would be blessed. We ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would empower the speaker. May the words of my heart and the meditations of my words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and right before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. During the uh, work weeks in the mornings, I start my day right here. Uh, in the sanctuary in the front to pray for you all, each and every one of you. But uh, when you spend an hour daily, his concerns include not only this church, the ESC, but the KSC and the staff, myself and the family. And then it goes broader, broader to like the community. And uh, he puts into my heart the needs out in the mission fields even. We have a couple of mission uh, fields that we're supporting as house churches. We have uh, Tijuana and Bangkok. I think about Pastor Samuel, who's uh, in uh, Tijuana, also Pastor, uh, Pastor uh, Scott, Scott Bang in, in uh, Bangkok, and the people, the needs for the people there too. And uh, when I'm like naming your names, because I have the list, I have the prayer list that are given to me, I can sense your spiritual states. And um, for certain individuals, I get to pray a little longer than others, and the Holy Spirit prompts me you know, that there is a, a need. And, um, and the, more, the more we spend time in prayer in that way, you get to know Him better, you know. Um, I can understand how some pastors, they claim to pray like six hours a day. Before, I, I used to think, six hours a day, that's a little, it's not a little excessive. But when you are in the goodness of God, the, the, the hour that you put in is not, is not drudgery. In the beginning, it may seem a little longer, but... Uh, but as you, get, as you get more and more used to it, you get into that zone and uh, you, you, get to, you get to commune with them. 
It is not a, a religious discipline, but a spiritual relationship, an intimacy that was afforded by the blood of Jesus Christ. Today, we go over again a verse that we saw last week, verse 19. The first part, it goes like this. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are His. This is Paul speaking from first-hand experience. If you remember back in the book of Acts, during the threatening storm when they were out in the water in that ship of 276 men, and they were all, you know, really afraid for their lives, this is where Paul brings a word of encouragement. He, sa he says, he, he declares his identity as someone who belongs to God. Last night an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. And then he goes on to say, none of you will, well, the ship must run aground, but none of you will be, uh, you guys, your lives will be spared. So he's able to give the people assurance because he knows that he belongs to the Lord. And the assurance doesn't come from just his hopeful, like a fanciful, wishful thinking. It's coming from God. Today's message is titled, Repentance and the Knowledge of Truth. And I will share with you three points at the outset. There's three points I want you to catch. The three points first are, number one, discernment. We have to discern what is honorable versus what is dishonorable. We have to discern what, is, what it means to turn away from wickedness, what is wicked and what is good. And then the second thing is disposition. If we continue to practice discernment in the Lord, our disposition, it will change. It cannot remain the same. We have to cultivate a disposition of kindness, not of being quarrelsome. Uh, we, have a, we have to have a disposition and a taste. We cultivate a taste for things that are, that are holy and pleasing, something that's pure, right? And then lastly, in our dealings. Sometimes we come across op opposition, people that, that don't agree with you, people that are not in the faith that may be hostile to you. And uh, we have to learn how to deal with them gently, not aggressively or vindictively. These are things that will make, make you more sure that you, in fact, belong to the Lord. And therefore, you have the assurance that you are, you are fitting to, to be useful to His Master. So, again, the three points are, number one, discernment. Discernment from what is honorable, what is not dishonorable. Second, disposition. And then the third is dealings. Second part of verse 19, in 19b, says, Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. It is a fact that when we are in a church, in any kind of gathering, every single one of us can, with our mouths, we can, we can say, Jesus is Lord. Every single one of us can say, on prompt, Jesus is Lord. But in order for that confession to not be an empty confession, there is a requirement that you turn away from the old way of being. It's the first step in your own self-reflection. This passage comes to me first before I can preach it to you guys. And also from the uh, point of view of shepherds, I have one shepherd present here and one online, uh, it, should, it should come to you first before it's dispensed to the rest of your, your house church members to know if this confession in the name of the Lord is genuine or not. Let's start with the self. Did I turn away from wickedness? This word wickedness, idikia, in the NIV, is translated as, as wickedness. It means the following things. Injustice of a judge. You have the authority of a judge, judgment seat, but you're doing it unfairly. You're judging unfairly. 
or uh, unrighteousness of the heart and life. And then thirdly, a deed violating law and justice, act of unrighteousness. These things are pretty plain, but sometimes we, we don't know. We don't know because when we're looking, when we're facing the world, there is not a very clear standard on what is righteous, what is unrighteous, right? Do these things, do these things that could be categorized as wickedness remain in my life? Do I unjustly judge others? Do I have an unrighteous heart, attitude, and life? Do I do things that violate God's law? If I do these things, you, you might, you might want to check your confession of the Lord. If we confess the name of the Lord, we turn away from those things. So the first part, let's dig into the first part about discernment. We have to discern what is honorable versus dishonorable. In a large house, this is the NIV translation, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. The way our text is translated in the NIV is kind of misleading actually. The way the ESV renders it is like this. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, and some for dishonorable. So the original language is not referring to special versus common, but it's rather what is honorable versus dishonorable. And when we speak about dishonor, another way of saying dishonor is shame, shameful ways. When we look at the next verse, Paul says that those who cleanse themselves from the latter, namely from the dishonorable use, will be made into instruments of special purpose or honorable purpose made holy, useful to the master to do any kind of good work. In the world, this, this standard has been turned completely upside down. What is honorable and what is dishonorable? Where a person's individual identity is confirmed by boasting about his or her sin. The present culture, if you have a, if you have a sinful bent, if you have a particular personal sin, you actually foster that as your own identity and then you, you, you are proud of it. You kind of emblazon this, you know, off the, on your shirt pretty much and then you, you advertise it, right? What is of great shame and dishonor has been violently turned upside down as a root of pride. Now Paul is stating an obvious principle. If this large house represents a church, a healthy church has both committed believers as well as unbelievers. On a given Sunday, if we have our sanctuary you know, full of people, I'm not, I can't assume that every single person that is here are believers. In fact, if it is a healthy church, there should be some unbelievers that are coming into our midst. But even from the committed believers, there are those who have dishonorable patterns in their living. There are some struggles that you may have or you may actually have this injustice. You may carry out injustice because you're judging things from your own bias. Uh, you may have an unrighteous attitude of heart and life, being disobedient or being rebellious and violating law and justice. This may be something that happens within the church. And then we may create room for excuse for ourselves. Maybe even think that these are hidden, but those who confess the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness and dishonorable ways. I pray that here at the NBC that each and every one of us would be able to make a solid faith confession in his name that is pure and true. 
No room for wicked thoughts. No room for hatred and malice. These are dishonorable and useless to our Lord Jesus. The people who cleanse themselves from dishonorable patterns, these are set apart to the Lord, and they are equipped to do any kind of good work. It could be to serve as a shepherd of a house church or a deputy shepherd. It could be to, uh, to be a volunteer as a teacher for the, for the education department, for the children's ministry or the youth department, or to serve in the worship team. Right now, uh, we, were, we had to start a little bit late today because I had some technical difficulties. I mean, on a Sunday, when the pastor has to be in the media room and try to do that, I mean, we need some, we need some help is basically what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, when, no, now, how, how do we determine? How do we determine if someone has cleansed themselves? How, how can I be the judge of somebody who is clean enough to start serving in the church? I mean, if I look back to my own walk, I can't think of any point in my life where I thought, well, I'm clean enough to serve the church now. You know, that, that usually doesn't really happen. But uh, I find this, uh, for most practical intents and purposes, very useful guide is your willingness. Is your willingness. When I ask, hey guys, uh, take yourself off of a, put yourself on camera. That's the whole point of having Zoom so that I could see you. You know, that, all of that is, the willingness demonstrates to me that God, you are, you are ready for, to be cleansed by God and that you are being prepared to serve Him. I don't know if you've ever had, uh, heard this before. This is like a, it's like a slogan. God does not call the qualified, but He qualifies His called ones. If you are called by Christ, if you have a faith confession and you're being sincere, it doesn't matter where you're starting from. You could have, you could still be not out of the woods yet, but on your journey with Him, He'll make your load a lot lighter, and that's a promise. That's a promise that I have lived through. I have been, uh, uh, I have been cleansed where my burden that I'm carrying today is much, much lighter than it used to be. Take a look with me at the following parable. This is Jesus telling the parable in Matthew. Jesus told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seeds in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burnt. Then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. I, don't, I forget when, but it was sometime pretty recently, Pastor Daniel preached for the KSC that the, the place where Satan works most diligently is not out in the bars and casinos in the red light districts. Satan works the hardest to derail the people of God here in the church. It's in the church that we get the attack the most. You have to make a distinction between uh, what or who is in the church versus who is outside of the local church, right? 
From inside the church, we have this boundary where we are church as a family. We know each other. And as we are committed to being in the local church, we, we grow together, right? But once you're outside of that church, the people that are outside of that church, they no longer have a say in what goes on in here. You guys understand the distinction, right? Don't let your thoughts be influenced people by people that are already outside and no longer committed to this church. Are your thoughts influenced by God? Are your thoughts influenced by the Holy Spirit? Do you belong to Him in that way? Or are you being manipulated by something or someone else that does not belong to God? That's something that you should know. You should know very, very clearly. Practice discernment and turn away from a dishonorable pattern of life. And this leads to the second thing. If you are discerning enough in your, in your walk, if you're continuing to do, practice this discernment, spiritual discernment, if you're continually practicing the hearing of the Holy Spirit and not being, not being swayed by, by negativity, not being swayed by the attacks of the enemy, then your disposition changes. If, you're, if you are spending time with the Holy Spirit, you cannot not change. There's a gradual enough changing in the softening of your temperament. You know, you develop the fruit of the Spirit and then your character changes. Look at what uh, Paul says. This is a little bit, a little bit uh, associated with what's going on with the disposition you know, from, uh, from someone who is very aggro, you know, ag- very, very aggressive to someone who is kind, someone who is more gentle. Verse 22, flee, from, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a lovely description. I would love that to be the description of, of me, somebody describing me that way. Like if, if, you were able to, if you were ever to describe somebody and you were talking about a, a person in these terms, you know that's a good person that you want, you want to have fellowship with. What Paul says here, maybe perceived a little bit as a rift between the, those who are kind of older over and against those who are younger. Flee from evil desires of youth. Like, question is, you know, are all youthful desires of evil? Well, that's not what he's talking about, you know. I mean, historically in the Korean-American churches, there is evident strife between generations. The older generation don't understand the younger generation. And then the younger generation, we cry out, you know, you older folks, you don't understand what we go through out here, the second gen. You don't understand our needs, right? But uh, the word here, youth, in the Greek is neoterikos. It's a word that can apply to, to any unmarried men or women, even past the age of 30. You guys are well younger than that. And uh, it turns out, according to some sources, sources Timothy was about 40 years old by the time he received this letter from, from, from his spiritual father, Paul. What Paul is referring to by evil, evil desires of youth, this could include sexual temptation, impulses of, uh, to anger, rash judgments and pridefulness by people who have not been tempered by time and trials and those who have not made, been made wiser by experience. Those who are older, they have experience. Doesn't mean that they're all wise, but you know, if you, are, if you have some age, if you have some experience behind you, it should make a person wiser. And so when you're younger, when, you, when you're full brimming with energy and you have the hormones you know, uh, 
taking charge over your entire body, then yeah, I mean, Paul is saying, get away from that. Run away from it. Run from it. I remember, uh, I mean, this is not, Paul's not teaching to just only avoid something that, that is useless, but he's, he's telling you to avoid something that's most certainly, most certainly harmful. I remember a younger brother from one of the churches I used to serve, um, he came to me and he was asking me, because he, he, this is one of those guys that actually cared about what I thought. He came to, to give my advice, even if my advice is not something that he wanted to hear. You, know? you guys know what Burning Man is? Have you, have you guys ever heard of the Burning Man? No? Okay, well, that's good, because you guys are good folks, you don't know. Burning Man is like a... It's like a multi-day fiasco where people from all the, over the area, they gather in droves in the, out in the desert and uh, in what can be succinctly described as a pagan celebration of drugs, music, sex, and art. It's straight up one of those pagan revelries that we, that we see featured in the Old Testament. And uh, the brother said, hey, pastor, uh, I wanted to go out there and help maybe, you know, supply people with water and support them for their medical needs. And he was asking me, can I go? And I told him, I mean, I pretty much quoted Paul here, flee, flee from the evil desires of youth. Don't run headlong into it. I mean, he, he, he actually means well. He wants to go and do, do, be, do the helpful things for the people there. But that, that entire atmosphere that, that he'll be finding himself in, Will he be able to separate himself from that? It's, it's better to avoid those things. It's like a Christian is not going to a rave. You guys all know what a rave is, right? I've never been to one of those things, but people, Christians should avoid those things. However, we don't live our lives only fleeing from the things of the world. More often than not, we're mandated to engage the world. We can, we can flee from things that don't help or walk in the Lord by proactively pursuing righteousness. In other words, Christian is not someone who just runs away, but we, we flee from things that are of, of, our, of his disinterest and that are not important to, to, to him by pursuing what is important to him, pursuing things that matter to him. Pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And when we're calling out the Lord with a pure heart, with being with others, you know, that, that shapes our disposition, that changes our heart, that changes the way our demeanor to, towards one another. Uh, one of the things that the Christians sometimes struggle with is this teaching. Our Lord Jesus makes it sound like we're expected to be like doormats. I mean, we're, we're out there to just take the abuse from the world, you know. If they strike you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone asks you to walk a mile, walk, the, walk, walk with them two miles. If someone asks for your cloak, offer them your tunic. And some people take these to be standards by which to measure other Christians. <laughs> if other Christians are, are living according to this, then they're Christians, right? But Jesus says this so that we can apply this to our own heart. We apply this, to our, this principle to ourselves first, not to use it as an instrument to evaluate the next person with. It is a personal challenge that he invites us into from the Lord, right? To go beyond what is expected, to go beyond, beyond the law, the prescribed law, so to speak. Not an expectation with which to make demands on other people. 
These weeds that Jesus speaks of in the parable earlier, these are the people that are prone to promoting quarrels. They just love to bring on some kind of controversial thing and they start to start an argument, right? Paul says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. It's not only unuseful, it's not only not helpful, it's actually harmful. It's harmful for the fellowship, it's harmful for the body. There are some people who do what Paul says not to do because they just genuinely don't know. Like sometimes Pastor Charlie the Younger and I will have a theological discussion and we're actually speaking something theological and I think it's important and then and then we get, we get to this arena where we both realize, oh man, this is like one of those, like, it's got to take a long time and it's fruitless. It's a fruitless search and then we just stop, right? But some other people, they know. They know that these this arguments are going to produce quarrels and division, but they go at it anyway. They like to incite conflict in the church. When Paul says, don't have anything to do with these things, he's telling Timothy to separate himself from them. Separate yourself from people that put conflictive emotions about your allegiance to Christ, the church, and his teachings. The leadership has to know how to separate the negative influence while trying to nurture the positive influence. This is a, a, one of those things that belong. It, I would have loved to have had a Paul write me a letter about that and teach me the know-how of that. It takes experience and it takes time for you to for you to have that insight and to be able to put it into practice in a very wise manner. Verse 24, And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. That's a pretty tall order because, man, I mean, don't you want to be only kind to people that are kind, that are able to reciprocate the kindness? Like when you go to, a, you guys been to a DMV office, right? When you go to DMV, do the people that work there, do they appear kind to everybody? Or actually generally the opposite? I mean, this is a stereotype I'm generalizing, but in my experience, whenever I go to DMV, it's pretty unfriendly because they're dealing with people all the time. And this is the kind of stamina and the perseverance that the, the teaching of the Lord is requiring of us to not be argumentative. Going back to the Christian doormat stereotype, because we are actually fed up. We're fed up with the image of the pushover. Christians are not meant to be pushover, say yes to everything. Sometimes you have to be able to say no if the cause is right. We have brothers and sisters because we, we are so, we're so tired of being the, we're afraid of being labeled the pushover that, that uh, we have brothers and sisters who become argumentative, thinking that this is being assertive. Like if I'm failing to, to argue my case, I'm failing at my assertiveness, you know, standing my ground, right? Uh, this is Paul's reminder to Timothy for himself as well as for whoever he might appoint to the leadership of the Ephesian church, right? Because when Paul is writing to, to, to Timothy right now in this letter, he's telling Timothy, Take, let, put somebody in charge of that church and come, come to me. He wants to see him one more time before he dies, right? The character of choice when he appoints, when Timothy appoints the next person to lead Ephesian church is unbiased kindness. Not just the people that I like, but being kind to even the people that give me a hard time, you know? 
Because if you are kind and not resent, if you are because if you are unkind, if you are unkind and resentful, you you're not you're you're not teachable yourself. If you're resentful and if you're unkind, you, you can't be taught, and you disqualify yourself by being able to teach by example. If kindness is something that is supposed to be inherent in the leadership, you gotta be able to uh, pass it on to the people that are are, are gonna be modeling after you, right? It is one of the tenets of the. Uh, of the house church system that shepherds, including myself, including the pastor, we are not expected to just talk about it, but to show it, to demonstrate it. And that's what actually makes NBC kind of a very challenging church, but it is a church where you will find growth happening in your own life. Amen? I hope that this is the case. I hope that, you will, that this, there will be an incremental thing that maybe you don't notice right now, but uh, as some time goes by, after you look behind, after six months, you go, wow, I did change. The way I view the world and the life and my own life, it did change. My relationship with God did improve. And therefore, my life, my family life, the, the, all the things that are, that, are, that are important to me is, is changing for the better. That is what I want for us. I want that for us. And I want us to be the, the gatekeepers to the portal where, where people that did not know that before to be able to come and enter this is all made possible by the grace of Jesus Christ because what we have is a powerful, powerful thing. We have the gospel and we have the presence of Christ himself who is not just you know, turning a blind eye to the troubles that we, we face each and every day. This last part, not resentful, is a very important qualification for the Lord's servant. I mean, how timely is that? Pastor Charlie the Younger who's gracing us with his presence. I, he shows up monthly. He's actually, his ministry deals with that. His ministry is, is, is particular to dealing with resentments that are unresolved in your heart. Do you know what kind of things feast on your resentment, on unresolved hatred, or whatever is unresolved inside you? Is the demons and the, and the powers of the enemy. They latch onto that, they feed on that, and they try to manipulate you through that. According to a Canadian psychologist, Jordan Peterson, he's famous by now, he's a YouTube star, he states that the two most destructive attitudes in a person is, are resentment and arrogance. Resentment and arrogance. Can you imagine a servant of the Lord with these kinds of dispositions? That would be totally unqualified. There are pastors who believe that a sharp rebuke is absolutely necessary, and this is true. If you remember, uh, I mean, first of all, if a pastor cannot rebuke a brother or a sister that's out of line, that person is creating an entirely false sense of what authority is. The way the Lord works within the church system is that there is a system of hierarchy, a chain of command, and you do listen to the, you, who you would consider your superior, you submit to your authority. That's what Paul says, right? Now, uh, we have to read the Bible carefully. You, you will notice that Lord Jesus rebukes. Re Jesus rebukes sh sharply at some of the people. And God the Father disciplines those who belong to him. If you've, lived in the, if you've lived the church life, if you've lived the faith life all this time, I don't know how many, ever, however many years, and uh, if you've never heard a word of rebuke, I wonder, I, I question that. I, I question, we have to question, do we really belong to him? Does that church really belong to the Father? 
But this much I do know uh, from my own experience, while the rebuking is absolutely necessary, it is in fact God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You know, when I came to the Lord, when I first came to the Lord, uh, I did not even perceive the rebukes as rebukes because that's how dull I was in the beginning. But what did attract me to Jesus, what did attract me to my Lord was his kindness. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you not know, uh, or do you show contempt for the riches of, of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that, God, that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Never take kindness for granted. And if you see a kind person around you, Never, never think that person as weak. Don't take kindness as weakness. That will be a fatal error on your part. It is often the disposition that reflects the presence of God when a person is being kind, that demands our attention to Him and our reverence. Lastly, how? How do we cultivate this disposition? Well, first part was uh, to discern, right? Discern from right and wrong. Discern from what is righteous discerning from what is shameful and dishonorable to what is honorable and pursuing what is honorable. The last part is dealing with opponents gently. Now, if you have ever shared the gospel with people, you will come across people that just don't disagree, don't agree with you. And not only do they disagree with you, they don't like what they're hearing. Because before they hear the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins and we need, our, we need him for our salvation, before that part, they need to come to terms with the fact that they have sinned. That we are sinners before a holy God. We, we are deserving of death and condemnation and hell. And there's not a thing that we could say about it, against it. But when they disagree with us, it says here, verse 25, Opponents must be gently instructed in hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. I have heard some, uh, I mean, these are my own brothers and sisters in the one body that is Christ, Christ's body. There are some Bible believers that are very, very harsh against the sinfulness of the world when, in fact, we are mournful for the sinfulness of all, the whole, whole, whole mankind, right? But when you have Christ in you, when you have the leeway in your heart and the gentleness of the Holy Spirit, and when you're able to patiently present the case for Christ before the others, then that is coming from your hope that God will grant them the repentance. We can never coerce or manipulate. We can never force our views on the person and then think that that's going to that, that's gonna work. Maybe sometimes uh, something, maybe some, some you know, very harsh reality, maybe some crisis will, will happen in their lives and then they'll come to an awake, awakening. But by opponents, we're talking about, Paul's talking about sinners who oppose the faith. That they don't, want, they don't want to know about the truth. Sinners, maybe in Ephesus, who will not take Timothy's directions, even though he is their pastor. Sinners who are in need of repentance. I don't know if you've ever experienced this or not, but if you are in sin, the last thing you want to be confronted with is your sin. When you have a sin, the last thing you want to hear is a brother saying, hey, so how are you doing with that? You know, when you are in it, it's just, it's allergic, you know, we don't want to hear it. Sin tends to put you, lock you into that rebellion, uh, rebellious disposition. 
We want to be free from that, right? Paul offers significant wisdom here to be able to gently instruct, cautiously approach the subject, to tell the truth in love, not in a condemning way, but to tell the truth in love, you know? If you want, if you want uh, your brother or sister to, to do their share in the family chores, like taking out the trash or doing the dishes, and if you just like, if you, if you just kind of like, you know, bark the order at them, it makes the whole thing kind of unpleasant. But if you're able to gently usher them into that, into that cooperative uh, stance, more power to you and more glory to him. Amen? Amen. If you, um, whenever you acknowledge that, that you, have, you have this sin and you confess your sin, God grants you your repentance to, 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 to turn towards him. This is the conundrum, really. This is the question that we have is, how do we come to the, to the knowledge of truth of God? It's by repentance, right? right? If you don't repent, if you don't acknowledge that you're a sinner, you can't come to the knowledge of the truth, right? That's what Paul says here. But the conundrum is this. It's like the, what came first, the chicken or the egg question, the proverbial question. How do you know that you're a sinner? until you have an encounter with God. When I was, before I was a believer, before I became, came to know the Christ, I thought I was a pretty decent guy. I thought I was a high-ranking good guy out there in the world. I mean, that's how mistaken I was. And then, after I meet Christ, I realized, oh, dear Lord, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. And I am rightfully bound for hell. And it is now in the grace of the Lord that we are told, that we have received forgiveness. We receive forgiveness from Him and we're now able to go into the right. You see, God grants you the repentance to turn towards Him. He forgives you and allows you to have access of of the knowledge of truth. But without God as a reference, without Him and without His say so, we will always insist that we are in the right when we're actually in the wrong. It takes God to touch you in the heart and your mind to be able to come to, the, come to have the light bulb turn on and go, oh shoot, I've been thinking the wrong way this whole time. You know when that happens, when that, when that awakening happens? That's repentance. And when you have the repentance, you get to know, you get to have a more a clear picture of who God is. You realize God is a holy God. You realize God is a powerful God. You also realize that God is a forgiving God and a loving God, and a saving God. If we insist on our own ways, if we don't come into that moment of awakening, we become more and more alienated away from Him. So repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Paul said that everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. That is, if you say that Jesus is Lord, you realize your sin. And you, you, have to, you, have, you, you have now cultivated a taste that you don't, you don't want that sin anymore because it, who dwells in you is now is, is Holy Spirit. It's Holy Spirit now dwells in you and, and you're like, you're, you're, you know, you're cultivating the, uh, the taste that you used to enjoy before of the sin is now distasteful. It becomes something that you just, you lose interest in. I mean, something as, something as seemingly innocuous as watching R-rated movies, okay? R-rated movies. I used to love R-rated movies. 
and then like NC, even NC-17 movies, you know, because I used to be kind of a cinemaphile. I used to love watching film and talking about it. But after I walk with Christ more and more, these, these movies, they kind of assault my senses, and it's, it's generally kind of boring. I get kind of bored. I think that it, has, it lacks artistic merit. And then the taste is cultivated towards those things that, that inspire you to want to be more pure, inspire you to be more useful to the master, you know, to be able to cultivate more joy into the people around you, bring more of his goodness into the reality of people, humanity. Can't be done with our own uh, accord. It has to be done through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, wickedness, wickedness is the stuff that dishonors us and it puts Christ to shame if we continue to remain in it. I can't think of anything worse than remaining in wickedness because he took my shame. He's the one that took my shame and so that I could honor him. He took my death so that I could live with him eternally. He took our sin and death and replaced it with eternal life and promise of heaven. That is what we fill ourselves with every Sunday when we come here. Remember that. Remember that is why we gather together as his people. Do you remember last Sunday when I shared with you that uh, if you're a Christian, whether you like it or not, we're engaged in a battle? We're engaged in a battle, whether we like it or not. A spiritual battle in a war that was forever won by Jesus. And this is how it was won. It was won by love, which has brought hope. And my hope, as was Paul's hope, is that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken captive to do their will. Turn away from the dishonorable way of life. Repent and you shall know the truth. And this is what Jesus promises. And the truth shall set you free. Won't you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for uh, your message today. Thank you for the three Ds to discern what, is, what seems right to us, Lord, and then what is truly right before you. Help us to be able to distinguish these things. Help us practice things in a daily way. And help us not just insist these by our own accord, but help us to, to have you internalize your, your very person as the standard for how we measure these things. Help us uh, not become judgmental of others. Help us, help us know that if we do judge others, by the exact same measure, we will be evaluated, that we will be judged, in fact. Help us, Lord, um, also to, to carry a disposition of your kindness. Lord, if we are your disciples, we want to become like you. We want to become like you in character. We want to become like you in the way we speak. We want to, Lord, uh, emulate you in every way. We want to be imitators of Christ. And we need your help also dearly. We need your help, O oh God. And as we engage the world, as we engage people that would be our enemies, we ask that we would love our enemies. That we would not be vindictive. That we would not be vengeful. When we are wronged, when we are, Lord, uh, insulted, 
Help us, Lord, be like your disciples, be like your apostles who, who counted any kind of suffering that we receive on your behalf as an honor to suffer such things. Give us that kind of gusto, Lord, and, uh, and we want to please you. So won't you lead us this week with that kind of a heart attitude and that kind of clarity so that you know that you are our Lord and we belong to you. May all the people that have heard this message today, both in, present, uh, in physical presence and through Zoom, be en enormously blessed in that moment when they realize the Almighty God owns us, loves us, and cares for us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray these things. Amen. Now before we do our uh, response uh, praise, we'll have a time of communion. Um, those of you who are here present, I think my wife has passed the bread and the cup. It has two lids. Make sure you carefully peel away the first lid. Jesus, our Lord, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He took his disciples up to the upper room and he broke bread and he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my flesh. And then likewise, he raised the cup. He said, whenever you take of the cup, do it in remembrance of me. This is my blood. Now, as you open this and we take it together, I'll go ahead and pray. When you take the bread, I want you to think about the blessings that we receive from him. And when you take the cup, I want you to think about the sins that we were forgiven with. The sins that we were forgiven of, okay? Dear precious Father, we thank you that you had given of yourself as a holy and pleasing sacrifice. And through your sacrifice, we're able to gather together, calling God Almighty, the Heavenly Father, our Father. We ask that your name would be hallowed, that we would exalt your name on high by the way we live, that we would, Lord, go beyond just making the confessions and the praises with our lips, but our hearts being far away from you. We want our heart to be right in the holiest of holies, Lord. So we ask that you would cleanse us, that we would strain to be cleansed, that we would clean ourselves so that we will be used for your holy purposes. We ask that our dispositions would be just like you, giving and kind, gentle, and when we do face opposition, help us love them with your heart. In your name we pray these things. Amen.